There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to Mick Clifford Podcast with the Irish Examiner. We're coming to the end of the Dahl term and there is much to talk about in politics at a time of living precariously in the world, not to mind the country. Joining me to discuss where exactly we are at politically is Irish Examiner political correspondent Danny McConnell. Danny, you're very welcome. Good afternoon, Mick. Danny, we might as well get the theatrical element of politics out of the way first. Um, no confidence voting the government in this heading towards uh, the finishing line before they all head off with their uh, spades and buckets to the beaches. Um, it was a great time for thundering rhetoric and passionate defence of the administration's record, but w- w- was there much in it? There wasn't a huge amount, Mick, because we kind of, you know, people like me and, and my colleagues in the Irish Examiner team had been kind of tracking the numbers for a number of days before the vote. And it was very clear from quite a way out that the government was going to uh, survive the vote and survive comfortably. Um, and I, I think the margin, the final margin, you know, once was they secured the the, the likes of Nessa Harrigan and uh, Patrick Costello and other former government TDs like Mark McSharry and Joe McHugh, like the margin was very, very comfortable. Like so, like there really wasn't a, any danger of the government falling, and it, it did call into question, I suppose, uh, the decision of Sinn Fein to put down the motion of confidence. Uh, one suspects that you know there had been word of Richard Boyd Barrett and, and the the hard left kind of looking to table the motion, and they seem to maybe have. Take, you've gotten a rush, rush of blood to the head and kind of wanted to gazump them. But, you know, they've come out of it looking somewhat foolish. You know, the the, the sight of Mary Lou MacDonald sort of essentially kind of trying to get out of the Dáil Chamber before the vote was even formally uh, declared by the Cairn Corda just kind of fed into this kind of narrative that it was, a, it, it was a bad loss for Sinn Féin, a bad misstep. And all it served to do was galvanise the government's parties. You know, it, it kind of, you know, by being able to muster such a large majority, a working majority of 19 you know, we'll give them confidence going into the autumn when when far more difficult decisions have to be taken. Yeah, and one thing I saw, one TD mentioned, and it occurred to me as well, I have to say, because of a particular interest in it, and that was Mary Lou MacDonald, as one would expect from the leader of the opposition, was excoriating about the government's record in areas like health, housing and the cost of living. There was not one mention of the great existential threat of our times, Climate change. Is that because basically they know that, unfortunately, a lot of the electorate aren't that pushed about it? There's two things there, Mick. One, I think, you know, there's no coincidence that Sinn Féin have dominated leaders' questions, 80 or 90% of leaders' questions out in since the start of the year have been on cost of living. There's no coincidence there. They're doing that because they can make political hay and cause the, the government political damage in relation to that and essentially paint the government as even though their options and their ability to affect change is quite limited in the cost of living crisis because it's a kind of a, it's a kind of a global issue. Um, they painted it that it's the government's fault, it's all the government's fault, and ultimately life under Sinn Féin uh, would change everything. It's obviously not that simple, but ultimately hasn't stopped them from uh, putting the boot in repeatedly. Um, in terms of the climate change thing, um, you know, what is also very clear is that um, Sinn Féin are very weak on the climate issue. I mean, we did our own special report on Sinn Féin a number of months ago, and to say their their answers on the climate issue, what, what they came back were watery at best, vague, 
and and very much unsubstantiatable. Uh, so, like, it, it is a case that, you know, that they're weak on the climate agenda. Um, you know, this is the party that is essentially, you know, at a time when the government was looking to move to the point in terms of the carbon um, tax increases in May, in terms of, you know, trying to set out and get to that 30% reduction um, by, by 2030. We had Sinn Féin calling for those for those increases to be waived and, and delayed. So, you know, they, they have sought to have it both ways. But, you know, it was very noticeable that there was no mention of the climate agenda in Mary Lou Macdonald's speech whatsoever. OK, and it, it was put about, and I'm certain you've seen it, that on Wednesday morning, the government, as a result of what you've well laid out there, well, a lot and a lot of them were walking around with a pep in their step. That was Wednesday morning. By Thursday morning, I'd suggest perhaps a lot of them didn't want to get out of bed when they saw the results of the latest opinion poll. That's the Irish Times poll that showed another rise in the polls for Sinn Féin and another dive for the government parties. Yeah, and again, like I mean, you look at so Sinn Féin are now at thirty six percent up three. Fianna Gael are at 18, down four, and Fianna Fáil are down three to 20. The other major, the other kind of parties like the Greens and Labour are pretty much un- unchanged. So it's the movement of the top three that really matter. And you now have Sinn Féin essentially there, thereabouts, and at level, you know, you know, of the combined support of the other two parties, um, which is very significant. Um, and, you know, clearly the cost of living is making a huge difference. But I also think, Mick, and this is the thing this government and the previous government can't escape, is, you know, they are being judged on the issues of health and housing. And they have failed, by and large, on the issues of health and housing. Housing in particular has been the big bugbear. But when you put those two crises in, along with the cost of living pressures that people are feeling, of course, you know, uh, an opposition party, populist opposition party, that that's, you know, promising everything uh, without having to substantiate anything at the moment because they're in opposition are going to make hay with that and clearly that they are doing so and it's resonating with the public I do also think it's very interesting to see if you deep if you delve down into the kind of the the nitty-gritty of the poll and the sort of the, the underlying data and demographic data of the poll you know Sinn Féin are now more popular in the ABC1 category than Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil are combined that's a significant finding in, in the poll so it does show that it's not just the working classes who are flocking to Sinn Féin it's the aspirational professional classes who are also minded to give them a nod and look to maybe put them into government next time around and that is hugely significant I think the other thing I, I spotted in in, in the, the, the detail of it Danny was that among in terms of gender it was something like 37 percent of women and 34 percent if i'm correct of men supported them and what leaped out at me there was if you go back pre well perhaps it's to do a certain amount with the attributable to mary lou being the leader but they for a long time Sinn Féin had difficulty with the female vote and they certainly seem to have got past that as well they certainly have and, and again that's with mary lou and you know the pierce doherty owen o'brien you know, Donica O'Leary, kind of look of the party, Louise O'Reilly. I mean, it's a very different looking party than it was, say, under Jerry Adams and Martin McGuinness, you know, a, a party that was in, in, intrinsically linked with the Troubles. You know, Sinn Féin is now moving headlong in, not even at a canter, but at a, at a pretty sizable pace into the centre ground of Irish politics. It's becoming a mainstream party. Um, and ultimately, it's attracting a much broader base of support. Um, and, you know, obviously, they were to the fore of issues like abortion and uh, marriage equality and stuff like that under Mary Lou Macdonald. And, and they sought to capitalise on that sort of, that, that sentiment toward them. Um, but, you know, they are untested. And I think 
you know, they they don't have a single minister or former minister in their ranks. So they would be going in as a novice government, essentially like that. And that's a consideration that people would have to make. The other consideration that people have to make as well, Mick, is the vista of Sinn Féin being the lead party in government north and south of the border. And, and that very real probability or kind of eventuality may give people you know, pause for thought heading into the next general election. Um, but there is a clear message of, you know, there is a need for change. Fine Gael looked tired and jaded having been at the cabinet table since 2011, notwithstanding the fact that Leo Varadkar is about to retake the, the Taoiseach's office in December. They do look somewhat lethargic. Fianna Fáil have really struggled to create or eke out an identity since taking you know, the Taoiseach's office in 2020 because of COVID-19. Michal Martin has had literally no time to establish his own legacy or kind of develop their own legacy. They've made little or no progress when it comes to housing. You know, Dara Bryan is talking about 30,000 completions, et cetera, that, but ultimately it's a drop in the ocean. We also see huge difficulties in the length of time it's taking the state itself, not you know buying properties, but state projects that, you know, in terms of housing are taking anywhere between seven to nine years to be, you know, from concept to delivery. Like you're at nothing if that's the length of time it's going to take to build any houses when we're in the in the teeth of an emergency. And this latest crisis now, you know, in terms of, as you were reporting uh, in the Examiner this week about, you know, the, the, the accommodation for refugees now being, you know, all but exhausted. I mean, that just adds to the kind of the, the perfect storm that the government is facing when it comes to the accommodation issue. So, I mean, it's very easy for an opposition party like Sinn Féin uh, to criticise and point out to the frailties. And as I said, it clearly is resonating not just with the working classes, but with the aspirational classes as well. Yeah, um, one other way of looking at it, Danny, if if you take a scenario whereby, as as you point out, they're, they're playing with the wind in terms of the conditions, a lot of them global conditions that the government can't do much about it, but that I don't think that resonated with the electorate that basically if they're having cost of living problems, they're going to blame the government, that's understandable, and all the issues you said they failed on. And to be fair to Sinn Féin, as you mentioned, they have individuals there who are giving very robust opposition. So it's not just playing with the wind. They're adding something themselves. I'm just wondering, taking all that into account, taking into account that it seems things are certainly not going to get better for a long time. Are people revising how high it was estimated that Sinn Féin could go and that, for example, could they get to a stage where they would have such a, a number of seats, such a large minority, to put it that way, that they wouldn't need a party as big as Fianna Fáil, but maybe able to go in with somebody like the Sock Dems and a few independents? Yeah, there is that sort of sense, and particularly with the boundary redraw that's going to come, because we know the next door will have more, more TDs. As we were reporting in the Irish Examiner last week, Dara Bryan has basically put a figure of between 171 and 181 and kind of off the record what we're being told is it's likely to be kind of 176 to 178 will be the final total so you're talking an extra 16 to 18 TDs in the Dáil Chamber which means that the the Dáil majority will go up by seven so you'll need a majority of 87 essentially to to form a government. Sinn Féin are at you know there are 36 37 now at the moment so it's a long jump to get up to that 85 86 mark which I think is unlikely but they're certainly within the realms of getting into the high 50s to maybe possibly early 60s. The belief is that because a lot of the constituencies that you know your current three seaters will move to a four seaters, or four seaters will move up to a five seaters, and you may see a lot of current five seaters being split into two, three seat constituencies. And the, the belief is that Sinn Fein, should they stand a candidate in most constituencies, 
given the polls the way they are, are likely to top the poll in all of those constituencies. So if you take Donegal, for an example, Donegal is now a current five-seater. If Donegal becomes two, three-seaters, the, the probability is that Sinn Féin, rather than taking maybe two or three out of five, could actually end up taking four out of six. And if that's replicated, that seat bonus is sort of essentially replicated across the country. Sinn Féin could find themselves doing very, very well and could find themselves, you know, a good eight to ten seats ahead uh, simply by that bonus. Yeah, it's very interesting, all right, from that point of view. No, as you said, the major issue is cost of living. Are things going to get worse? I think it's undoubtedly, and I think the teacher has given warning to that in terms of the cost of energy in particular, and there's obviously the threat of of Russia turning the taps off and all the rest of it, or you know, the prospect of rationing. You know, they're kind of saying uh, you know, that they're not talking about rationing or shortages just yet, but they are certainly talking about further price increases. And you know, the teacher has been unashamed about warning that you know things are it's going to be a very difficult and challenging winter. I mean, if they're saying that now in July, you can only imagine how bad things are, are likely to get come November and December when we're kind of in the depths of winter. Um, and there's no guarantee now. It looks now that this Russian invasion of Ukraine is not going to be over in a matter of weeks. This is going to drag on and be a very long and prolonged um, you know, situation as well. So that obviously has its own impact on the uncertainty around trade supplies, you know, food chains, all that kind of the rest of it. So it is going to be a very challenging uh, winter. Um, and, you know, the difficulty is we're, we're essentially kind of a, we're a price taker. We import all our, our stuff. So it very much is we're limited in what we can do to try and offset it. Any sort of longer term plans, you know, like creating your own kind of, you know, solar wind, wind, wind farms and, and kind of wind, wind energy. So, I mean, these are years and years and years away. Like this is nothing, got, they're not going to be in place for this winter. So things are going to be very difficult. Um, and again, there is a limit to what government can do in terms of you know, reducing VAT, reducing excise, all that kind of stuff. And they've already moved once or twice. So, you know, there's going to be an awful lot of pressure, I think, on Michael McGrath and Pascal Dunhu, the two money ministers, to ensure that whatever package they bring forward on budget day, not only for next year, but that kind of the cost of living budget, which is essentially going to run in parallel with the normal budget, it's going to have to be a, a sufficient scale to really buffer and insulate the vast majority of low and middle income earners um, uh, from, from the worst elements of it. Because we're already hearing many stories of people having to make that choice between heating their homes and feeding their families. And we're, in, you know, as I said, we're in, we're in July now. It's not necessarily we're, we're, we're in cold weather at the moment. So you know, it's it's a very, very difficult situation the country finds itself in. Um, and ultimately, you know, the government will be held to account by an opposition that simply is seeking to try and, you know, weaken its, weaken its position and strengthen their own position. Yeah, and talking obviously particularly about Sinn Féin. Um, so it is going to be a very, very difficult winter for the government. And you've got other issues that, you know, they're going to have to grapple with, like, you know, a challenging public sector pay deal, which has already been rejected by the unions once. Um, and there's no guarantee that they're going to come back to the table. They probably will, but it's just another headache that Michael McGrath and Pascal Dunham have to deal with. And I'm sure they won't be overly happy with the fact that the budget's been brought forward to September because normally they would give themselves the eight or nine weeks from the back end of August into October to get a budget together and you know make sure I's are dotted and T's are crossed. We're getting into that sort of squeezed and pressurised area, make it remind me of the time after the bank guarantee when the then government brought forward a budget and they made an absolute hames of it because they didn't give themselves enough time to politically proof the budget, there's a very real danger that something like that could happen again. And you you mentioned that period, and, and one thing that marked that period was, to some extent, the disintegration of the government at the time. I mean, come the autumn, and supposing what are euphemistically described as tough decisions are having to be made, is the scenario possible that they could lose people and lose to the extent that it would really put 
the government under threat or will this be a question of in the end they'll all hang together? I, I think it's inevitable that you always will tend to lose people uh, during uh, during governments. You know, there will be issues of conscience that people will go against, like Micah, like Joe McHugh, etc., like that. And uh, you know, the National Children's Hospital, say Nessa Harrigan. Like the Greens are obviously hoping that Pat- Patrick Costello and Nessa Harrigan will re- rejoin the fold after their six month suspension. So that will, you know, obviously officially uh, kind of boast the numbers back up again o- over that technical majority level. But there's always the danger that you will see people go overboard. Like, look at Navin Hospital. That is a that's a, a mess of a situation that 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 has political dynamite written all over us. You know, uh, as I was reporting this morning, uh, you know, Shane Cassells, the the Mead senator, had a right go at the PP meeting last night uh, over the decisions around Navin Hospital, saying, you know, it's not just a medical decision; it's a political decision, and there are real political consequences, you know, uh, to come out of a decision like that. So, you know, there there are kind of potential landmines all over the place for the government to try and overcome. Um, but you have to say it has proven itself to be very robust at the moment uh, or so far. But as I said, between turf and, you know, the kind of rural Ireland kind of agenda that the likes of Michael Healy Ray and Danny Healy Ray and Matthew McGrath are pushing on a daily basis, which is really kind of ag- agitating the, the, the Fianna Gael and Fianna Fallback benches who have no love for Eamon Ryan and the Green Party anyway. Um, you know, there is fires being put out all over the place at the moment, but it is literally only a matter of time before those sort of issues bubble over into a kind of a major crisis. 
than, than going to your local hospital where you're, you'd be getting substandard care. The fear would be you'd be getting substandard care. Listen, Navin Hospital, the medics, or some of the medics have, you know, have basically said it's not fit for purpose. It, it needs to be shut. Um, you know, it, it's always tricky because you're literally kind of, you at that kind of crosshairs of local politics versus national politics kind of, you know, at play. And, you know, a local politician, you know, particularly in a government party, will always have to walk that line of you know, saying within the fold, but articulating the concerns of local politicians or local constituents. So I think Elaine's points were, were very well made in terms of that, you know, you have other options if you're from the Navin area. But I suppose the concern being raised by the likes of Shane Cassell is like Navin had been previously earmarked to be the main regional hospital there, you know, a number of years ago. But that was stopped by Dermot O'Hearn, as he claimed at that PP meeting last night. So, you know, it's messy and it's complicated. And ultimately it will take, you know, if the minister is to kind of eschew those sort of local concerns, it's going to take a lot of metal to do so. And whether or not this government has that sort of metal remains to be seen. Stephen Donnelly obviously kind of went in and overruled the HSC initially, you know, in terms of of, of the decision to shut it down. But, you know, it's going to have to be resolved sooner rather than later. But I, I think the sense is, and a lot of the concern being raised around Stephen Donnelly is that he's a great man for sort of kicking the can down the road a bit or buying more time. But sooner or later, this will have to be dealt with. And only and only time will tell whether he will back the medics or back local politics. It reminds me, Danny, of an opposition politician speaking to a long time ago who had a major interest in health. He said to me, one day I was talking about the system, he said, yes. I could solve the system as Minister for Health if I didn't have to get re-elected and if my leader didn't get my back. And ultimately, I think that's what it comes down to. I I, I don't hold out much hope, but look, it, it, it is what it is for the moment. One other quick element in the party politics aspect of it, Danny. The Greens, we haven't had our carbon budgets. And what kind of resistance is there going to be from Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael when they do come in? Yeah, so this is a kind of issue that's beginning to rear its head. And we again, we were reporting on this in the last couple of days. You know, so the Greens essentially have put down, or Eamon Ryan has put down, particularly in, say, the area of agriculture, kind of a, a reduction in emissions of between 22 and 30%. Now, obviously, the IFA and other lobby groups are, are looking to kind of get to the 22% side of it rather than the 30% side, because what rural TDs from government and opposition have said, listen, 22% is, is hard enough for, for producers and farmers to take. But when you go beyond that, when you're getting into the 24, 25, 26%, you're talking about actual culling of cattle. You know, you're actually talking about directly affecting livelihoods and incomes and all the rest of it. And that's much more tricky. Um, and, you know, so there there will definitely be a, a ding-dong going on behind the scenes because obviously Charlie McConnell, as agricultural minister, will defend his sector as best he can. And obviously the... The affection that both Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil claim to have with rural Ireland, they will sort, sort, you know, seek to kind of defend the traditional way as they have done, say, with the issue of turf. But Eamon Ryan, you know, has he himself hung that milestone of thirty percent around his own neck? So, you know, if, if it's if it ends up being twenty two percent, it's a victory for Charlie McConnell and Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael. But if it's thirty percent, it's very much a victory for for Eamon Ryan. I I think it's very unlikely that they will go to thirty percent. I just don't think the government would would stand or last if they went to thirty percent. But this is the route that's going to play out between now and July 27th when that last cabinet before the summer recess actually kicks in or happens. And, you know, as I said, there's going to be a lot of horse trading going on between now and then. But you could see it already. The likes of the Michael Healy Rays and the rural independents were, were raising this issue in the doll in the last couple of days. They're sabre rattling already. They know that this is an issue that's of real concern to their constituents. Um, and this is one that's already making a lot of rural government TDs and senators very nervous. Yeah, I know. personally, I wonder, is there an issue around the two bald men fighting over a comb? Because whether it is 22, 25 or 30 percent, 
are we going to ever reach those targets, no matter which it is? I mean, that's the reality, Mick. Like, I mean, look, Ireland has had to kind of really step up the trajectory of its targets because we were so negligent in kind of getting going in the first place. You know, we're, we're, we're playing a huge amount of catch-up. And we know Ireland has been subject to a huge amount of fines in terms of our environmental record. You know what I mean? In terms of you know the polluting of rivers, we get fined on an ongoing basis. You know, we keep missing targets. We keep... Cl- claiming an exemption or a special status because of our agricultural base. But, you know, we produce an awful lot of food in this country not, and not just for our own people. We produce, we're a huge exporter of, you know, dairy food and all, the, and, and all the rest of it. And that's the argument from a government perspective that why we should get a bit of leeway. But, you know, there is a huge job of work to do and there is a reluctance and there is a resistance among some parties to accept the reality of that. And I think that's why I think you've seen in recent days, I think as we spoke at the beginning um, about the, the lack of mention of climate change in Mary Lou's speech, you know what I mean? Like, there is a sort of sense that, you know, some parties and some parties who are hoping to be in government are not really at the races when it comes to the climate agenda. Okay, no, you mentioned it earlier, and I think this is a really significant development, and that is the news during the week that effectively we had reached the limit of possibilities in terms of what you might call have decent accommodation for refugees, whether they be fleeing the Ukrainian war or a myriad of conflicts and oppressive regimes and what have you, principally in the developing world, in terms of international protection. This, I think, Danny, is such a serious thing for two reasons. First of all, during the housing crisis, I don't know where they're going to source accommodation. And secondly, does it open up in a way not previously done in this country? I think we have a general reputation generally speaking, for being relatively receptive to people who are fleeing horrendous conditions, does it open up the possibility that there'd be some kind of a backlash or, at the very least, less of a welcoming for refugees in this country? I think it's inevitable, Mick. You know, Ireland, the government has made a very clear decision not to put any sort of cap on the numbers coming in at a time when we've already got a very acute housing crisis in the country anyway. You know, people are, have been talking, oh, well, we have a huge number of vacant houses in the country and all the rest of it. But, like, we've had vacants for, for many years. Like, we've had a housing emergency since 2014, and these these vacants have remained, you know, untouched. Um, so I, I don't think they're necessarily going to be the solution. Like, there's a real question to be asked in the coming months about Ireland's social cohesion when it comes to the impact of so many refugees coming into the country. I think that welcome, that very real visceral welcome we all felt at the very start of the war, given the numbers that we were going to take in, was always likely to be replaced. When you know, when there comes pressure on housing, there comes pressure on school places, or there could come pressure on other resources, there is unde- inevitably likely to be difficulty. And at the end of the day, Mick, you know, there is, and I think let's be frank about it, there has always been a sort of underlying element of racism in Ireland to foreigners who've come in here. It's been anecdotal. It's been, you know, I've seen it in, when I worked in bars, I saw it. When I worked in when I worked in Dublin City Centre, I've seen it a lot. There is a small number of people who will always resort to that sort of racism, you know, if you're if you're not from this country. And I do fear that if it's not handled properly, if the government, you know, don't handle this properly, then we could see more instances of that happening in, in the coming months. I think it was very notable that Micheál Martin voiced concern at his own parliamentary party meeting this week about you know the large number of refugees who have come into the country in recent months who are not from Ukraine, they're coming from other other places. And I, I do think you know while there have been very strong criticisms from the likes of Leo Faracker and uh, uh, from everybody else, you know, to the likes of the Royal Independence who've raised the spectre of caps and raised the raised the kind of notion of you know why are we why are we having why are we taking an unlimited approach to this. I do think the narrative, the official narrative will change. I do think if we're if we're still 
dealing with people in tents come October and November when the weather is going to be an awful lot worse than it is right now, then I don't think that's a situation that, that many people are going to be comfortable with. Yeah, I think you could be right. It should also be acknowledged, and I think it rarely is, that the countries um, in the developing world, for instance, that are adjoining countries people are fleeing from take proportionately far, far more refugees. And you even, in Europe, you only have to look at Poland, which took up to 2 million Ukrainians as a neighbouring country. But notwithstanding that, there's a different dynamic in, in, in different countries. At a political level, Danny, we've also been very fortunate in that, unlike a lot of countries in the last number of years, Nobody's been trying to exploit this issue, bar the odd independent and that kind of thing. Um, do you think that kind of cohesion can hold? Uh, I, I think it's going to be severely tested, to be honest with you, Mick. And I was even kind of getting soundings from both the Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil parliamentary party meetings last night. You know, that that there is that, that concern that, you know, certain hotels in certain towns are beyond capacity in terms of the, you know, the refugees that they're housing. And, you know, these are essentially supposed to be kind of short-term stopgap kind of uh, <clears throat> solutions until they were moved out into the community. But we're several months onto this, you know, from from this now. And essentially, what what have we done? Have we essentially just started up a second direct provision process or scheme? You know what I mean? That these people are going to languish in, in hotels for, for quite a while. Yes, they will have the right to work. Yes, they will have other rights and benefits that people in direct provision won't have. But the reality is the accommodation in the community just simply isn't there to house all these extra and additional people. So there's this meeting going on this afternoon of, you know, this cabinet subcommittee of ministers essentially kind of being asked to kind of come with ideas to the meeting. So the government is really at a loss as to what it can do. Um, so I do think we're likely to see in the coming days and weeks the scramble from government and government ministers to try and put in place a system that does not leave vulnerable people who've already been through so much in, a, in, a, in accommodation that they really shouldn't be in, on, even for a night or two. One other thing, Danny, and I, because I did some work on this during the week because I've done a lot of stuff on planning and I just came across this. The rushed legislation, all these amendments that were shoved in to a planning bill, the original bill, 20 pages, 18 pages long, the final one with all the amendments rushed through for two and a half hours, plus they got an extra hour in the end, which they just could not get through the number of amendments, 48 pages of amendments. Now, you combine that with the rushed legislation in relation to MICA and you throw in uh, there a number of weeks ago on the electoral reform bill, Darrell O'Brien sneaking in this thing uh, where give Fianna Fáil or any party the rights to hold draws. Um, it's not a good look for a government that is claiming that it's the, a, ballywe, or a, a, a bulwark against populism to be undermining the doll. No, it's not. And, and it kind of smacks of old school Fianna Fáil strokeology, to be honest with you. You know, the, this idea of ramming through legislation. You know, Michal Martin was asked this question last week. Um, you know, he himself, demanding Doyle reform after the 2016 general election, bemoaned the, the, the guillotining of legislation by the then Fine Gael Labour government and saying this is not acceptable. Serious, you know, serious legislation needs to be kind of properly scrutinised and all the rest of it. And then he's had to kind of turn around and admit, well, in certain circumstances, it, it is acceptable. So he's had to kind of recant on, on previous, uh, previously held views. Um, it's not a good look, particularly when you say, you're, you know, the, the MICA issue in particular, which has been so politically sensitive over so long, for it then to be kind of rammed through the doll, simply because the government said we want to get it dealt with before the summer recess, when, you know, there's no reason why they couldn't have brought it forward in earlier weeks and actually given it the time and due diligence that it deserved. Um and I think it ill behoves someone like Darren O'Brien, who has such a crucial ministry, to be at the epicentre of not one, not two, but three or four examples of 
guillotine legislation. It's interesting as well that Simon Harris, who was on the on the cusp of guillotining the high, the controversial higher education bill this week, decided to pull it and will now run it in the autumn without having without the need to guillotine because he just didn't want to go down that route. And he, he as a minister, decided listen, it's not worth the political aggravation to guillotine it. Like the other option was, the, you know, the doll could have sat for an extra couple of days in order to prioritise a couple of those extra, very exceptional pieces of legislation. You know, the, the the sky would not have fallen in. You know, there may have been a few groans or whatever like that in terms of you know passing legislation. But I, I do think we should have uh, at least looked at other options other than ramming through the legislation because it does feed, as you're right, that by doing so it does feed. Uh, the cynicism that does exist around politics about strokeology, about kind of we're kind of looking after ourselves in terms of these amendments, and you know that's why I think you know the likes of yourself and uh, I know Keanu Callahan have raised this issue in the Dáil earlier this week. We're absolutely spot on to do so, um, and ultimately, um, you know this is what majority governments can tend to do. This is you know when when you have a majority, you can tend to get sloppy, lazy, and, and tend to kind of do these very cynical moves. Okay, Danny, that was great. Thanks very much. That's a, a great insight to what's going on at the moment. I have to finish with a little indulgence, and that is yourself being a dub. I'll just tell you a very brief tale. Uh, 50 years ago this year, my father lifted me over the gate into Croke Park for the very first time, and it was an unbelievable experience. I've been going very regularly since then. And I have to tell you that last Sunday, I emerged from that theatre, that cathedral, you could say, with a better feeling than I ever had, I would think, after a football match. I'm sorry, but that's just the way it is. Well, I had my young lad, my five-year-old with me uh, for his second ever game at Croke Park. And uh, like the, the the pageantry and the like, the game itself and the drama of the game was just exceptional. But, uh, you know, him turning around saying, did we not win this time, Dad? You know, it was kind of, <laughs> was kind of not, a, not an easy thing to have to say to a dub. You know, in fairness, we've enjoyed a great deal of you know success in recent years. And uh, it, was, it, was a, it was a difficult pill to swallow. Yeah, that was time. We didn't know. We didn't offer it. We didn't know of it. I'm my young fella there too, and he's he's a strange beast. He's he, he's a dub who actually supports Kerry, but he might be onto a winner for a few years though with a bit of luck. Well, you can't go wrong between Dublin and Kerry, Mick. I think he's generally <laughs> fairly good sorted on that one. So I'd say we, we we've alienated everybody else at this stage. Listen, Danny, thanks very much for that. Thank thanks, you, Danny. Mick. Cheers. Uh, I'd also like to thank uh, our man on engineering duties today, Irish examiner pitch editor Jim Collin, and thank you, folks, for listening. We'll talk to you again soon. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.